morning again. Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, I just have a quick question just to find out. How many of you um, are decorated at this point in your, okay, okay. How many of you have not started yet? Oh, okay. You guys are a little late. It's fine, but I know some, we had, I had some people talk to me. It was like, no, December is when we start, not before I get it. Okay, so um, we're fully decorated. We're ready to go at our house. Got our tree and everything, um, and I was thinking back this week about um, my growing up in my house and thinking back of growing up and thinking about Christmas and how it looked and what we did, some of the traditions you have. And this is a time of year where you kind of do that. You reflect on, on, on things that you used to do, the traditions you used to have. Um, maybe it was um, specific decorations that were set up at your house. Maybe it was like a classic Christmas movie that you watched constantly at your house. When I think of my Christmas memories, I have a lot of them. Um, I think of um, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra Christmas songs. That's what I think of when I think of Christmas songs is those because when I growing up at my grandparents' house, they would always play those. So that, that's the only Christmas songs I want to hear are the, the really old school ones. Uh, we used to watch Christmas Vacation. You guys know the Christmas Vacation movie? We used to watch that every single year as a family. Um, that was our Christmas movie. Um, I think of the day of Christmas, we would kind of always hustle around. We'd open presents at my house and go to my grandparents' house and go to my other grandparents' house. So all day, we're just opening presents. And I know for some of you parents, you're like, that sounds like a terrible Christmas day. But for us kids, I loved it because I was opening presents all day long. Um, I think of some of the best presents I ever received one year when, I don't know what year it was, maybe 95, 96, um, when the Nintendo 64 came out. And that was, for there were our parents in the room around that time, um, that was like the hot ticket item of the year is like everybody wanted an N64. Of course, myself, my brother really wanted one, so I was at, we asked my parents for it, and my dad was trying to find it. He couldn't find it anywhere. He was searching everywhere. He said, I can't find this N64, but he's like, I, I, I gotta get him something, so instead he got us a PlayStation 2. And then, two days before Christmas, he found the N64, and instead of being like, well, I already got him a PlayStation 2, he's like, I'll just get them both. And I remember when I woke up and I opened both presents, I was like, my parents are millionaires. How could they afford? to give us both of these. It was the best. I, I still remember this day. I was, we were so, we were, couldn't wait. We were so excited to have both of those. Um, and you may be like me, but my guess is when you think back at your house or maybe your grandparents' house when you grew up, you, there's some, some specific decorations that you think of that for some reason are like in your brain. It's like, oh yeah, I remember they always set that thing up. Maybe it was a, a certain ornaments. Maybe it was candles that they put. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of different things it could be. There's one thing I remember that my parents always said about. I don't know why I had this in my mind, but it was on our front door on the way out. So it was on the inside. And on that front door, there was a big banner that was there. And it had this very popular saying. And you probably know this popular saying. Maybe you have a coffee cup that has this. Maybe you have some decorations that has this popular saying. Here's the saying that it had. It had, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know that saying, right? It's cute because it rhymes. Jesus is the reason for the scene, for the season. And the point of this saying is great. It's a reminder that in the midst of the busyness of the season, in the midst of all the, the presents we have to purchase and all the debt that we go in, in the midst of the candy canes and the eggnog and the cookies and the, with the weird cream stuff on top, what are those cookies called? They're gross, whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anyways, okay. In the midst of all that stuff, in the midst of that, all these distractions that we can have that we need to remember and reflect the fact that we're, we're celebrating Christmas because God sent his son a manger to die for us. That the birth of Jesus Christ is why we celebrate this season. That's why this saying is popular. Jesus is the reason for the season. But I hate to break it to you. This saying is actually not true. Sorry to break it to you. Some of you have some, to throw some cups away. But this saying is actually not accurate. 
And I don't say this to be mean and to say it from my opinion. It actually, Scripture tells us that this saying is actually not accurate. Let me give you two examples. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah prophesizes the birth of the Messiah, prophesizes Jesus' coming. And here's what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So who does Isaiah say it is for? Us. Give you another verse. This is a verse you probably know. It's the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Here's what it says, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. According to John, who was given Jesus? Who was Jesus given for? The world. For us. Jesus did not come for a season. Jesus did not come for himself. Jesus came for us. So actually, here's a better saying than Jesus is the reason for this season. Here's a better saying. We are the reason for this season. We are the reason, not Jesus. You and me are the reason. Let me go a little deeper with this. Because of our sin, we are separated from a perfect heavenly father. Our sin put a gap between us and a perfect creator. Our good deeds couldn't bridge that gap. Our sacrifices could not bridge that gap. Our religion could not bridge that gap. There was nothing we could do to have a relationship with God. So God, in his love for us, decided to give his son, Jesus, in a verifiable and historical way. He came, people saw him, people recorded that they saw him, which was a very expensive task back then. But many people recorded what they saw, that this Jesus guy who preached this radical message of love and grace and surrendering to everybody else and said, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back to life three days later. And he actually did that, and they recorded it. All of that is the reason why Jesus came for us. God is perfect and holy. If so by definition, we have to be perfect and holy to be with him. But none of us are perfect and holy. So he sent his son to be the ultimate sacrifice so that when God looks at us, he actually sees his son instead of us. If we needed to be saved, if we didn't need to be saved, then Jesus would have never came. But we all needed to be saved because we were all sinners. Here's another way you can say it. Instead of we are the reason for the season, I can, we can say it this way. The reason for the season is because of how terrible of a person you are. Merry Christmas. That's really it. We are the, you notice I said you guys for that one. We, we are terrible people. We are the reason for the season. So throughout this season, this series, we're going to look at the Christmas story to learn how we are all the reason for the season. And when I say Christmas story, my guess is you probably think the standard Christmas story that just like the nativity set you have with, the, with Mary, Joseph, and a little baby, and wise men who actually weren't there, but for some reason are there for a nativity set, and then animals and a star. That's normally what we think of, of the Christmas story. And yes, that is the Christmas story, and we get parts of that wrong, but that is the Christmas story that we're talking about. But if we look deeper in the Christmas story, in fact, if we looked at the story of Christmas that got us to the Christmas story, we truly understand where all of that came from, where, how we got to that point, I believe that we will learn a lot more about the Christmas story, about why we are the reason for the season. So the story actually begins 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. This begins with a guy named Abraham. You were part of our last series. We talked about Abraham. Um, if Mary was someone who didn't know she was that, how she got pregnant, Abraham and his wife Sarah were people that desperately wanted to get pregnant, but were not pregnant. And at this point, Genesis chapter 12, very early on, 2,000 years before Jesus is born, the Lord gives this promise to Abraham. This is where it all starts. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country 
your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, God is telling Abraham, Abraham here to go away from his country, his people, his father's household. What he's basically saying is leave everything you're comfortable with, leave everything that you know, leave all your security, leave all your protection. You're going to leave all of that. It's a big ask that, that God is giving Abraham. God calls Abraham to leave everything he knows and everything he is comfortable with. And in exchange for leaving everything, this is what God promises to Abraham in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. There's really two parts of this. Of this. Not only will his name be great, but Abraham and his tribe and his nation will be blessed, and at the same time will bless everyone else. Through this nation, they'll be blessed, they will bless everybody else. Here's the only problem with this promise. In order to have a nation back then, you had to have children. At this point, Abraham is 70 years old. Children are very unlikely to happen at this point for Abraham and Sarah. But if you're going to be a great nation, and you're going to bless other people, and you're going to be blessed, like, children have to be part of that equation. You have to have children in order to be a nation, especially back then. God promised to bless Abraham. And if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, well, how can I actually believe that? Because you haven't blessed me yet. You haven't blessed me with kids yet. Like, that's the one thing that... Back then, you needed to have kids. You didn't do that with, for me yet. How can I believe that you're actually going to bless me? But that's not the, the end of the blessing. Verse 3 says this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is an amazing promise. And Abraham, even though he had every reason not to believe it, even though he had all this evidence to show that God has not blessed you yet, even though he has not had kids yet, all these reasons to not believe it, Abraham still decides to believe it. He leaves everything and goes and pursues what God calls him to do. But Abraham doesn't live long enough to see this promise fulfilled. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah, you know the story, they do eventually have a child at a very old age. And we talked about this in our dysfunctional series, uh, dysfunctional family series. And so um, I'm just going to give you kind of the highlights here because we have a lot to cover here. But Abraham has a, has a son named Isaac. Abraham, if you know his story, at one point, Abraham, is, is, uh, he allows Pharaoh to take his wife Sarah to save himself. He says, that's my sister, even though it was kind of true, kind of not true, but he would do that to save himself. He eventually has a kid named Isaac. Isaac actually does the same thing with his wife, Rebecca. He allows um, Pharaoh to take his wife as well, so showing some not-so-great ways of being blessed or being a blessing to other people. Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's uh, son, Isaac and Rebecca, they have twins, Esau and Jacob. And I don't know how well you get along with your siblings or how well your kids get along. These kids did not get along. They hated each other. They, they fought all the time. In fact, the younger brother, Jacob, stole the blessing and the birthright from Esau. Jacob, he has kids, and these kids also hate each other. How much? Well, they all go to war with each other, and 11 of Jacob's sons decide to sell another one of Jacob's sons, uh, a, a Joseph, into slavery. Eventually, this entire family that's supposed to be a blessing for everyone else and supposed to be blessed, eventually this entire family is supposed to be a great nation and the names could be known very well. This family eventually becomes slaves in Egypt. So with this family, you may be thinking, where's the blessing? Because it sure seems like there's a, a lot of dysfunction in this family, and eventually they're all slaves. Where is the blessing? How are you being a blessing to other people? And this is where Moses enters the story. You may you maybe know Moses. Moses, a um, hundred years um, after they are slaves in Egypt, the Israelites uh, are slaves in Egypt, Mo Moses meets God in a burning bush. Moses takes this calling that God gives him, and he takes this order to set the Israelites free. Ten plagues later, and one sea parted, eventually the Israelites are now set free. But at this point, still no one is feeling blessed. 
The Israelites don't feel blessed. They've been slaves for a while. Now they have to wander the desert to this promised land for a while. The Egypt certainly doesn't feel blessed. The Canaanites don't feel blessed. All people on earth will be a blessing through Abraham. At this point, that's simply not true. It's not happening. It hasn't happened yet. There's no reason to believe that it will happen. All people are certainly not blessed. If you stop here at this story, the only logical conclusion we can have is that God's promise to Abraham was wrong. It's the only logical conclusion because they have not blessed, been blessed. They have not been a blessing to other people. Their name is not known. Their name now of this, of this God is now of the God who allows his people to become slaves. Like the name is, of God is not being known. Abraham's name is not being known at this point. Skip ahead a thousand years. And now the descendants of Abraham are now known as the kingdom of Israel. And maybe at this point that they're a kingdom, maybe they can start to bless other people or be a blessing to other people. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know this doesn't happen. The first two kings of, the, of Israel, the first two kings, they go to war with every nation around them. They're not being a blessing to everyone else. Solomon, the third king, he marries other women of other nations, which was a big no-no back then. And now the kingdom of Israel is actually starting to look like every other nation. They're not any different from any other nation because they're starting to worship other gods. They're, they're certainly not being blessed or not being a blessing to other people. Israel cannot be a blessing to other kingdoms when they become other kingdoms. So God divides the nation and sends other nations in to punish the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel at this point is the furthest thing from being blessed and the furthest thing from being a blessing. If there was a, a golden era of the Israelites, it would have been when they made it to the promised land. They're, they're slaves after Moses, and uh, Moses has them free. They're, they they wandered the desert for 40 years, and they eventually make it to the promised land. That would maybe be the golden age of it. But they eventually mess all that up, and now we're thousands of years past that. Now they're divided, and nations are conquering them over and over and over. The last thing that they are is blessed, and the last thing that they are being is a blessed scene. Here's what it would kind of be like. Um, maybe you look back at your family, and you think of where you, how your family used to be, but it's not the way it was back as it used to be. So you think, man, that was the golden era. And if maybe we didn't make some of the decisions that we made back then, maybe things would be a little better. Maybe you were part of a church. I know I was part of a, a church plant that's no longer here. And there was an era, there was a time where it was like, man, people were showing up. Uh, people were meeting Jesus. There was a good time period. And it was like, man, that was a golden era, but we, mistakes were made along the way. And now that church is not there anymore. Maybe you're a business and your business used to be thriving, or maybe like you look at like Blockbuster, there was a time period where that was everywhere now, and now you can't find one anywhere now, right? There was always a golden era. There's like, man, if we just made different, different decisions back then, maybe things would have been better. This point in the Israelite story, they might be looking back at the promised land days and be like, man, that was the time. But we messed it up. We're not being a blessing anymore. We're not being blessed. Nations keep destroying us. Everyone mocks us. No, no one honors the God that we serve because they think, what kind of God would that be? So if we can just go back to that, maybe if we made it, but we're way past that. But throughout this season, God would continue to send prophets. Prophets were people that were spoke for God to the nations. And these prophets over and over again, if you read the Old Testament, over and over and over again would say, listen, I, I know it doesn't feel like it now, but God made a promise. And God always fulfills his promise. He made a promise to Abraham that he still intends on, on following through with it. I know it doesn't feel like it now. We have to stay true, have to stay true to this God, and we will be blessed, and we will be a blessing. God does not break his promises. In the later half of Israel's kingdom period, Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet who spoke on God's behalf, and he spoke, first he spoke about God's judgment against, against Israel because they were acting just like other, 
other nations. They were worshiping other gods about that. But at the same time, Isaiah would speak hope that the promise would be fulfilled one day. And here's what Isaiah says. He tells this to the nation. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we're supposed to be a blessing. We're supposed to be blessed. We're also going to be a light to the Gentiles, not even our people, to the rest of the people, and our salvation is going to reach the end of the earth. A light to the Gentiles, we're not even a light to ourselves. Salvation to the rest of the world, we can't even save ourselves. How in the world can we do it for everyone else? This statement isn't just inaccurate and improbable. It's actually kind of insulting at this point. Because Israel is not going to be a light to the Gentiles. It's not going to be salvation to the rest of the world. 1,600 years after the original promise to Abraham, in 436 B.C., God says another prophet named Malachi. At this point, the Israelites had returned from 100 years of exile. In exile for 100 years, they returned back to, um, to Jerusalem. They have high hopes that the promise is going to come true at this point because they're back in Jerusalem. Maybe at this point, they'll get it right. Maybe they won't repeat the same mistakes all their ancestors did where they started following other gods and got us to this point. Maybe they won't do that. But if you read the Old Testament, you know that they continue to do the same cycle, the same mistakes. They do exactly what their ancestors did. And in that context, Malachi speaks for God and says this to the people in Jerusalem. It says this in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and, burnt and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations." No, it won't. It hasn't been. There's no reason to believe it will. It hasn't been at this point. Why in the world would it happen again? In every place, in any place that incest is burned, that just simply isn't true. God's name currently is being mocked by all other nations. It's not great. Let me, I try to think of a real life example to get, to help us understand where we are in the story. Here's the best I could come up with. Imagine if I came up here and said to you today, hey, guess who's going to win the Super Bowl? the Washington Commanders. Some of you would go, there's no way that's ever happening. That's what you would say, right? This is kind of what's happening. It's like, the name of, be great among the nations, wherever incense, that's not going to happen. God's name is not great. The nation is corrupt. The nation is poor. The nation is anything but blessed. God's name isn't great. God's name is pathetic to the point where other nations mock us. The other gods, maybe their names will be great but not the Yahweh God, not that God, not the God who makes promises that doesn't actually fulfill them, not the God who allows any other nation to come in and destroy them, not the God who allows his people to be slaves in Egypt, not that God. That God's name will not be great. Not a God who is, whose nation is as weak as possible. At this point in, the, in history, the nation of Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Macedonians, and many, many more nations. And this isn't even the worst it is. In 63 BC, Pompey takes Jerusalem by force. This is the place you don't want, if you're going to be a blessing, you have to hold on to Jerusalem. Pompey takes it over. In the midst of it, he murders half of the priesthood. And now the entire region is ran by a kingdom called the Kingdom of Rome. The Roman Empire, that's a nation that could for sure bless the rest of the world. That's a nation that maybe God could use, because the Roman Empire, that's basically eternal. The Roman Empire is strong. The Roman Empire is winning. The Roman Empire isn't going anywhere. The Roman Empire, that's one of the great ones, but not Israel. 
In fact, Israel is as low as it can get. And here is what we know at this point in the story, in, in history. All nations will not be blessed through Abraham. Israel would not be a light to the Gentiles. And their God would not be worshipped throughout the world. Who would be interested in a God that can't, can't take care of his own people? A God who cannot fulfill his own promises. And this is the moment. This is the part in history. This is the time that God decided to send Jesus. This moment, when it was as low as it possibly could be in history, when the promise he made was seen to be almost guaranteed not to happen, this is the exact time that the Christmas story happens. When we hear the Christmas story, we think, ah, oh, it's just a cute Hallmark story that we, that we talk about. We throw it in there with, with Rudolph and Frosty. That's what we think of. But when you look back at the history of how we got to that point, the history of the Israelites to get us to Jesus, you see a different story. In fact, um, Paul does this. Paul, he understood the entire history of the nation of Israel, and he had seen Jesus, and he knew the birth story, he knew his death and his resurrection. Here's what Paul writes after the resurrection about all of what we just talked about, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come, here's another way to say it, when God had everything exactly the way he wanted it, why didn't God just send the Messiah, send Jesus right after Abraham? Why do you have to wait thousands of years, all this hardship, all this, all this destruction, why do you have to wait so long to send the Messiah? Why do you just send him directly after he made the promise? Why did God allow thousands of years and then hundreds of years of silence, of not speaking at all? Why did he have to do all that before he sent Jesus to fulfill the promise? I think if we look at the story, there's really two reasons why we can kind of see why God decided to do that. Here's the first one. Number one, humans had exhausted all options. Israel was, was they were slaves. You would think rescuing them from slavery would be enough for them to stay true to God. It wasn't. Israel had seen God conquer mighty army after mighty army, even though their nation was the weaker one. He saw how God would showed up and conquered all these armies. You would think that would be enough to make sure they would stay true to God. It wasn't. Israel was rescued from exile. You would think that would be enough for them to stay true to God. It wasn't. At this point in the story, it's as clear as possible. There was no way to be blessed or to be a blessing through humans, through man. There was no way to stay true. We have thousands of years of evidence to show us that when we're left to our own devices, we will not be a blessing, we will not be blessed, and that we can never earn our salvation. We have thousands of years to show that. Humans could not offer a perfect sacrifice to make themselves right with God, no matter how much God intervened, no matter how much God showed up. In the story of salvation, it was clear that a Savior was needed because we cannot save ourselves. That's number one. And number two, why do you wait for this set time? Because of the power of Rome. At this point in history, there was nothing more powerful than Rome. Nothing. It was basically eternal. Rome ruled a good portion of the Middle East, of, of North Africa, and European regions. It was the biggest empire the world had ever seen. And with this empire came monetary and military and linguistic systems that made it easy for someone like Paul to take this message of, this, of Jesus on these roads that Rome had made in a language that was common to most people, Greek, and spread this news. In fact, Rome was a pretty tolerant 
kingdoms to other religions. That's how they became so powerful. See, Rome, wouldn't, they wouldn't obliterate other cultures. Instead, they would just take other cultures, allow you to keep your culture, but they'll just Romanize it. And that's how they grew to be as big as they were. This is the first point in history where there was the perfect combination of the development of roads, which made it safe to travel and spread this message, with the, an accepting culture that allowed you to spread this message, a common language, as in Greek, that most people spoke, and the freedom to spread this news, it all perfectly combined to allow Christianity to spread. When the set time had fully come, Luke 1, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. When we just hear the nativity Christmas story, it's so easy to throw it away. Because we've heard it so many times. I've done these sermons multiple times. Every year when it comes to Christmas time, I'm like, how can I preach the Christmas story again in a different way that you will be re relevant and new to you? It's hard to do it. You've heard the story many times. But here's what I know. The story of Christmas, the story that got us to where we were, where, where we are, the story of Christmas makes the Christmas story easier to believe. The story of the Israelites, the original promise, all this time of rebellion, exile, and no, no blessings, all these nations that destroyed the other nations, all this time makes it more believable that the Christmas story actually happened. Because here's what I know. Every kingdom, including the eternal Roman kingdom, that thought it was eternal, every kingdom falls. And when you understand the story of the Christmas story, there's really no reason that we should be here talking about Jesus. There's no reason that Yahweh's name should be remembered. There's no reason that this story should have lasted thousands of years, but it did. And the promise actually came true. And here we all are celebrating the Christmas story that you all know, that all of your friends who might not even believe in Jesus, they all know. Here we all are celebrating the Christmas story all these years later. Whether you believe in it or not, we all know that Jesus has something to do with all of this. This radical message from a carpenter from a nowhere town during a time where Yahweh's name was not great, but the Roman Empire's name, that was great. That would rule forever. Somehow, the Roman Empire falls, and this message from a carpenter from a nowhere town preaching this radical message that he did survived. It isn't because this message gets us all this power. In fact, the message he preached, we give away power. It isn't because this message boosts our self-worth. In fact, the message that Jesus preached said, no, you need to deny yourself. No, it isn't because we are promised all this wealth and all this security and, and everything we want. In fact, the message that he preached said that in this world you will have trouble. The reason this message made it through all this history all these years when it shouldn't have made it through, the reason why it made it through, the only logical reason why it made it through is because it happened. That's it. There's no other reason for a story of a carpenter from a nowhere town who said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back three days later, not like spiritually, not like someday. No, three days later, you'll know after the weekend if I was the person I said I was. And when they saw that happen, they all gave their lives and sacrificed their lives, surrendered their lives, took the expensive time to record everything that they saw to let us know that, it's, that it was actually true. So when the angel goes to Mary, he says this, 
you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Through Jesus, the original promise that we read in Genesis is fulfilled. So during this season, let's remember why we celebrate. We don't simply celebrate that Jesus came because that isn't the real reason for this season. We celebrate why Jesus had to come. We celebrate the fact that Jesus had to come and rescue us. And because Jesus came, we can now have a relationship with God. So this whole story that took thousands of years to tell was all told so that you will believe. Because Jesus is not the reason for this season. You're the reason for this season. I'm the reason for this season. So as we get ready for this season, we're going to talk about this more. We get ready for the busyness of everything we're going to do, shopping for angel tree kids, shopping for your kids, all the family we're going to see. There's no better way to start this season than by taking communion together. This is us celebrating and reflecting and remembering why we are here. That Christ came to save us, to die for us. When we take communion together, we are reflecting and, and remembering the fact that he came and died for us so that we can be saved. So as we get ready to take communion, just some things for you to know, if this is your first time here or this is not your church home, um, we, we do open table here, as in you don't have to be an uh, owner of this church. This not have to be your church home wherever you take communion. We just ask you to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're not but you want to be, this can be the way that you do that. Um, so this is an open table. We invite everyone to participate. So what we're going to do, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite us to go down the middle aisle and grab your elements. You can come take a seat. The worship team, you guys start coming up. They're going to be playing a song for us while we, while we do that. I want you to have this moment to reflect on the season that we are in, to reflect on the God that we serve, to reflect on the God who gave his life for us, to, to, to listen to this worship song as we get ready to take communion. Then after the song's over, we will lead you in communion together. We will take it as a church family together. So let me pray. Dear God, thank you for being the God who created this season. The season we reflect on the love and grace that you have given us and you have shown us through your son. The birth of the Messiah. I pray that you help us to remember why you had to send your son because of our sin to be grateful for that grace that you've given us and to turn and repent from our sinful ways follow you better. To thank you for this season that we have. That we can remember you, we can worship you, we can have a relationship with you because you sent your son for us. Help us to take these next couple moments to reflect on that grace that you've given us. To reflect on that hope, to reflect on the purpose that you've given each one of us. So that we can prepare ourselves for the season that is ahead. In your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand, let's all grab our elements.